couple announcements. First of all, we're going to change the format a little bit because two weeks ago I lost complete control of the clock. I looked like one of our old quarterbacks in a two-minute drill and not very effective. So I tell you what we're going to do is we are going to run the Sunday school for 50 minutes. I'll go through my lecture. And if I get done early, great. But the last 10, 15 minutes, what we'll do is we'll open it up to questions then. Okay, I'm still going to have people uh, read Bible verses, so there'll be some interaction. The reason why is, as you can see, we're still in the same section, so I'm not getting through it. And I want to have you guys feel like we're making progress and we're still on track, okay? With regards to our dialogue last time, remember the question was whether or not logic was inherent to the text. I want to address that real quickly with you because I think it's important that we make sure everybody knows that logic and reason is inherent to understanding who God is. And so I'm going to cite a verse to that effect. Also, how many were not here last week? Okay, I highly recommend that you guys pull up last week's Sunday School. Bob and Chris Roseborough did a great job in explaining many different things regarding the emerging church. And I felt like when I left, I felt like giving Bob some of the $1,000 that I gave to Bethel Seminary. Okay? It was like going to seminary last week. And I'm just saying that because I want you to know from somebody in the business that you really got a good education last week, okay, and take advantage of it. I mean, this is stuff, it's, it's really good. So specifically last week, Bob helped us to make category distinctions between, like, for instance, when we're arguing with those in the emerging church, how do we distinguish between the omnipresence of God and panentheism? Okay, how would we make that argument? Well, Bob helped us see the category distinctions in the errors of the emerging church. I think it's extremely important. So if you get a chance, please look that up. But let me address the issue of logic. And let me take you to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to show you how Paul assumes the law of non-contradiction to be true. And if it's not true, if the law of non-contradiction is not, in fact, valid, then this passage makes no sense. 1 Corinthians 15:12. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now stop there. What is Paul saying? He's saying, how is it, if it's true, that in fact I have preached Christ has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying categorically there is no such thing as a resurrection? Okay? And then he goes on, he says, But if there's no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is in vain. So to Paul, he clearly makes a distinction between resurrection, A, and non-resurrection, non-A. Okay? And you see, we can't make a category distinction between anything in the Scriptures without the law of non-contradiction. We use it all the time. We can't distinguish between Christ and Antichrist. So I'm just pointing this out. Now, you and I don't have to use the fancy term non-contradiction, but just realize that when we're distinguishing between two categories, we're using logic. And so it's inherent in the text. We can't understand what it says without using the law of non-contradiction. Does that make sense? Okay. One other passage. Turn with me to Romans 10, 2. I just want you to see how important knowledge is to the Scriptures. Listen to what Paul writes of his fellow Jews. He says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says, But not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The problem was, 
with the Jews, not that they didn't have a zeal. They had a zeal for God, didn't they? But it wasn't according to knowledge. Okay, in fact, they tried to establish their own self-made religion in order to get to God. And again, knowledge is inherent to the scriptures. So I just want you to see that logic and knowledge is crucial to our saving faith. All right? All right, now, let's get back into the text of Colossians. And what I want to do is I'm going to start actually in verse 17. That's where we left off last time. And recall, we are in the section of Colossians where Paul is laying out the supremacy of Christ. And there's two things you want to see. Number one, why is Jesus given this rank of the firstborn? It's going to answer that question, but also Paul is going to be answering the question, why should the Colossian Christians worship Jesus alone and completely neglect anything else, namely the angels that they were being taught to invoke by the false teachers? Okay, that's the section we're in. So with that, let's get started into verse 17. So when we were last together, we talked about Jesus not only being the creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer. And we talked about the idea because Jesus is the sustainer of all things, there is no such thing as chance. And remember, in our culture today, many atheists are, are ascribing causal power to chance. Okay, In other words, they say that the universe came about by chance. Well, really what they're doing is they're taking a word that has to do with mathematical probability and they're changing it to be a force. Chance, friends, is not a force. It is a word that describes mathematical probability. Friends, there is no piece of chance in the universe. There's no such thing, okay? And so, therefore, if God is in control of all things, chance as a force does not exist. And I want to show you a passage. Turn your Bible to 1 Samuel 6 with me, if you will. And I just want to talk, I'm going to just give you the background here, and I'll just read a section of it. But in this section, if you remember, the Philistines, they actually sack the Israelites in battle because of Israel's sin, and they end up taking the Ark of the Covenant to their capital. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant is before their god, Dagon. And remember, Dagon ends up falling over, and it loses its arms, I think, the first time. Then they prop it up, and then it falls over, and it's smashed. Well, then they think, wow, this isn't good. And the Philistines are wondering, what's this all about? Well, then they started getting tumors. Well, finally, they realize something is up with this Ark of the Covenant. The God of the Israelites, Yahweh, is a God that we can't stand to have in our presence. Okay, there's something about him. So what they do is they set up a test. And you're going to see this application and how it relates to this idea of chance. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 6.10. Now, here are the Philistines. And they take the, the Ark of the Covenant and they tie it behind a couple of, uh, uh, really, just cows. They're oxen. And it says this. It says, Then the men did so and took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. So get the picture here. The calves are being stored away and now the cows are going to be pulling this Ark. And the test is, if the cows do what's natural, in other words, they return to their calves, that's the natural thing to do, right? Well, then this ark really isn't such a big deal. But if the ark travels back to the Israelites, then they know that there's a God in Israel who is, in fact, controlling, and there's no such thing as chance. Are you with me? So listen to what happens. It says, They put the ark of Yahweh on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likeness of their tumors, and the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. 
Okay, and that literally means the house of the sun. It's 15 miles just to the west of Jerusalem. It was actually a town that was given over to the Levites, and so it's a Jewish town. And it says they went along the highway lowing as they went, and they did not turn aside to the right or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Okay, so now what do we glean from that? Well, the natural order of affairs is that cows would turn toward their calves. But the imagery here is that they were in misery. They were lowing. And Bob, you're a farmer. What is lowing all about? What is that? Um, I, yeah, you probably know cows better than I do. Um, would they turn? They would typically turn back. These cows are clearly in misery. And the point being, um, oh, that we have a farmer. I'm sorry. At any rate, we know that the natural order would be that the cow would want to return back to its calf, but it doesn't. And that shows you the doctrine of providence that God even works through these dumb beasts. Okay, He controls every single atomic molecule in the universe. There is nothing random to God. And I'll tell you where that plays out practically in our lives. I don't know how many movies I've seen lately. I haven't seen the movies, but you see the trailers. It's always an asteroid that's going to wipe out the Earth. And, of course, NASA and some guy in a spacesuit is going to have to go save the day, right? Well, I think a lot of Americans are always terrified about that, but should you and I as Christians? Now, I know the book of Revelation talks about wormwood, but we just accept that's part of God's plan. And whether it's a meteor or whatever it is, we know that that's part of God's plan for the end. But the point is, you and I don't have to fear about radical, unabated comets hitting the United States or the world and destroying us because God has everything in order. Okay, and that's a huge worldview issue. You and I don't have to worry about anything in the cosmos being out of order because Christ has ordered it all. And we have evidence. I, I love these little stories, how you see little nuances of it throughout the scriptures. So, all right, now with that, let me um, keep rolling on here. Again, let me just reiterate what this slide is about. Verse 17, Jesus is not only before all things, in other words, he is the creator, he is the originator, but he's the sustainer of all things. Okay, So he's both, and that's what Paul wants us to see there. Okay, now on to verse 18, we see that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Paul writes, he says, He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Okay, now let's talk about this idea of him being the head of the body. The head of the body, we see this imagery, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12. The church is considered the body, and Jesus Christ, of course, being the head of the body. Okay, and so that's his role. He is the commander-in-chief of the army. He is the head of his people, and he will direct us into battle and into victory. And in fact, what's interesting is this head, this general, he's the one who does the dying and the fighting. Typically, the army does it at the general's beckoning, but here the general does it and his people benefit. It's very, it's, it's upside down, isn't it? Okay, that's the kind of commander-in-chief, the head of the body that we serve. Now, next, notice this idea of the beginning and the firstborn. Here we have the idea of the beginning, again, is that he's the creator, and the idea now of the firstborn is that he is the savior. Okay, so in the beginning, remember we talked about in Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.16.17, there's this idea that Jesus is the beginning of all things. He's the creator of all things. But now also he's the Savior. 
Okay, so that's clearly being shown here. Now, let me talk about this idea of the firstborn. I think it's kind of an interesting uh, concept. First of all, the firstborn from the dead, the primary meaning is that Jesus is the preeminent one. Remember that we talked about Exodus chapter 4, where Israel was considered God's firstborn. They were the preeminent one. Did that mean that Israel, they were the first people ever born on the planet? No. It didn't have to do with the chronology of birth, but rather their place of prominence, their place of honor, because God had chosen them unconditionally. He elected them to be his people. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, he says, Israel, I chose you not because of, I'm paraphrasing, not because of anything you've done and not because you're the largest of all people, but because you're actually the smallest and because I gave a covenant to your forefathers. That's why he chose Israel. It's for his good pleasure. And so we see the same idea. Jesus is the preeminent one from the dead. He is the highest rank. That is the first meaning of this passage. Now, but let me talk about a couple other nuances that kind of touch on this idea of him being the firstborn from the dead. And I'm going to have some people read some of their passages. First of all, let's talk about the fact that Jesus is the first to have a glorified body. Now, right away, you start to think, well, hey, didn't Jesus raise other people from the dead? You think about Lazarus in John chapter 11. Well, think about it. Lazarus is back in the tomb again, isn't he? He's in the grave, stinking it up. Okay, He's in decay, isn't he? He's, now, his soul is with the Lord in heaven, and he's awaiting his final resurrection, but he never got a glorified body. So the only one to ever have a glorified body through a resurrection is Jesus Christ. And therefore, not only is he preeminent in rank, but also he's the first to ever have a glorified body. Okay, so who had the passage John 11:39? Oh, Bill. Jesus said, "Take away the stone." Martha the sister of him who was dead said to him, "Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead 4 days." Oh, okay, good. Yeah, now, you're probably wondering, why in the world am I having you read that? So Jesus commands Martha to roll away the stone, and she says, Lord, he's been in the tomb, Lazarus, for four days. There's going to be a stench. I'm going to make the case that I think in the Jewish mind, they knew that decay, or they believe that decay started on the fourth day. Okay? To them, the third day you were okay. But if you're in the, the tomb the fourth day, you're technically undergoing decay. Now, where do we see that in the scriptures? I think there's a piece of evidence that we see in Leviticus 7.17. And I think, Stefan, you had that passage. Now, listen to this. And now this has to do with meat that is sacrificed or food that is sacrificed to God. And notice that the Lord commands that it be gotten rid of on the third day. Okay? Now, just listen to what he says here. But what is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. Yeah, and so the idea there is if anything goes beyond the third day, it's no longer safe. It's under decay, all right? And so the idea then is Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, okay? Now, he doesn't see decay. Now, to give further weight to our argument that seems kind of weak at first maybe, but who had Acts? Did I give Acts 2.27 out to anybody? Oh, yeah, Mary Alice. Listen to what, now remember, Acts 2.27 is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And the proof that he gives of who Jesus is is the empty tomb based on Psalm 1610 
that, in fact, Christ's body is not in the ground. It's David's body is in the ground. He's rotting and stinking it up. Jesus is, in fact, raised from the dead. Okay, and therefore, Psalm 1610 couldn't apply to David. It had to be about the Messiah. And listen to what he says here. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Yes, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And later in the sermon, Peter says he looked forward because he was a prophet to the Christ. So the prophecy in Psalm 1610 was that the Messiah would not see decay. So, therefore, this is my contention, is he had to be raised on the third day. Why? Because after that, on the fourth day, you're suffering decay. Okay? And again, that gets back to the Levitical law. The meat had to be thrown out on the third day. What, what day is Jesus raised from the dead on? The third day. Okay? So the idea here is Jesus uniquely was the only one to never see decay. Every single other person has seen decay. Does that make sense? Okay. And so he is uniquely the first from the dead in that sense. Okay, now, the other thing that I want, to, want you to see that plays into this, again, these are tangential meanings that are, the, the primary meaning is the preeminence of rank from, of Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. But here's another meaning that we, I think we want to see tied to this. It's the idea of Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection. In God's providence, he had these feasts Passover, unleavened bread, and the Feast of First Fruits line up on the 14th, 15th, and 16th day of Nisan. That was going to be the first month of months, according to Exodus chapter 12, for the Israelites, because in that month, God was going to take the Israelites out of bondage. Okay? So what he has them do is they end up killing the Passover lamb on the 14th. Okay? On the 15th, they celebrate unleavened bread, and on the 16th is a wave offering of the first fruits. Okay, now what is a wave offering of the first fruits? Well, what the Israelites would do is they would take, they only had a little bit of the harvest, and they would take that on a sheaf, and they would take the sheaf and they would wave it in front of the Lord, and they would be saying by doing that, Lord, we have this much of the harvest, and we expect you for the rest. We trust you for the rest. We know you're good for it. You're the great provider. Okay? So, Jesus goes to the cross on the 14th. He's our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right, according to John the Baptist. He's in the ground the full day, or part of the day on the 14th. Remember, to the Jewish reckoning, any part of a day is a full day. So he's in the ground on the 14th. The full day of the 15th, that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat fall into the ground, how can it bring forth life? So the bread of life, who comes from Bethlehem, means house of bread. The bread of life comes from the house of bread, and he's buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And now, on the 16th, the bread of life comes forth, and he is, in, in fact, called the first fruits of the resurrection. Who had 1 Corinthians 15.20? Yeah, Pat. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Yeah, so the idea there is, remember, we t- go back to the idea of the sheaf, the wave offering. Jesus is that wave offering. That's the imagery there. He's the wave offering. And what we can say by trusting in him is, Lord, we have this much of the resurrection. We have this much of the harvest. One day we expect you for the rest. You see, you and I, through trust in Christ, we're going to be raised too. 
We have this down payment. And so that's where the imagery comes from. And so all of this rich imagery is tied in here into Colossians when Paul is talking about him being the firstborn from the dead. It's very, very theologically rich, isn't it? Okay, let's move on here. Yeah, and this is the final point I wanted to make. Yeah, one day the whole harvest comes. And that is, friends, that is the blessed hope of the resurrection. We have proof positive that this will happen. Remember again in the scriptures, when we see the idea of hope, it's not the idea that, oh, across my fingers, I hope the Vikings win today. I hope my car starts or whatever it is in this world. That's how the world uses hope. Hope, elpidus in Greek, it's an assured thing in the New Testament. It's an assured thing. It will take place. Why? Because God assigned his covenant name to it. All right? We will, in fact, experience the resurrection. Now, going on into verse 19, we see the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. Paul writes, he says, Because in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Now, this is a personal translation because I want you to see the, the connection between, it just says all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Now, our job is in, you know, as um, interpreters is to figure out what does it mean by the fullness? What does that have to do with God and with Christ? And so we're going to explore this idea of fullness. And what you'll notice is that the because there that I have highlighted bold, this is the place where it gives the reason for Christ's primacy. Okay? So in other words, when we ask the question, why does Jesus have the rank of being firstborn of all of these beautiful things that are said about him, it's primarily because he's God. Because God shares his glory with no one else. And therefore, the logical equation is, well, if Jesus is getting all this glory, well, he therefore must be God. And that's exactly what Paul is pointing out here. Notice this idea of fullness. Again, we're going to see it throughout the book of Colossians. And what Paul wants to drive home is that the false teachers at Colossae are saying, you need more than who Christ is. And so Paul continuously picks up on the theme that, no, in Christ we have the fullness. We need nothing else. Now, you're also going to see this term come up in uh, Colossians 2.9. And who had the Colossians 2.9 passage? Oh, yeah. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Thanks a lot. The Jehovah Witnesses, I'll try to, when we get to that passage, I'll show you how they try to get around that, and I'll show you how they can't get around it. That's a clear affirmation to the deity of Christ, and we're seeing the same thing here. So the idea here is that the fullness of deity is in Christ. Now, this term actually comes from the Old Testament, and I'm going to have a few people read some more verses here. But again, this is the big point. The false teachers at Colossae taught that Christians needed more help than Christ would give, namely the invocation of angels for protection. So can you imagine how ridiculous it is? You have God who has saved you once for all. He's coming back for you, but you don't trust him, but rather a being that he created. That's absurd, isn't it? And that's exactly what was happening in Colossae. So this is an absurdity. Now, I'm going to show you where this idea of fullness is kind of played out in the Old Testament. And who had... The uh, passage from Jeremiah 23:24. Oh yeah. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Declares the Lord. Yeah. So there's the idea of fullness. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Declares Yahweh. Okay. So that's the same term that's used in the Septuagint. This idea of God's fullness dwelling all over. That, that had to do with the doctrine of omnipresence. 
that Bob was talking about last week. So there's nothing, nowhere we can go that God's fullness isn't. He is omnipresent. All right? So we see that he dwells everywhere and his fullness is all over. Uh, who had Psalm, did I give Psalm 72:19 out? Maybe I didn't give that one out. That's all right. I want you to see this other phrase, pleased to dwell. Because that's also an Old Testament concept. Psalm 132, 13 through 14. Did I give that one out? Oh, yeah. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. That's beautiful. So he has desired Mount Zion. Of course, that's Jerusalem for his resting place. So think about from a Jewish perspective, if you're reading this, knowing that Yahweh had desired to dwell in Mount Zion. And now you have the Apostle Paul saying, this same Yahweh is pleased to dwell in Christ. In other words, he's synonymous with Christ. Now, that doesn't get rid of the promise that God will one day dwell forever with us from Mount Zion. He will. But it just shows you that the claim is from Paul that this same God is, in fact, Christ, the same God of the Hebrews of the Old Testament. Okay, now, one other passage I wanted to look at, or two others, Psalm 2-4. Who had that one? Psalm 2-4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Yeah, so he dwells in the heavens. And I love that, because here we have the God who scoffs at the world's, you know, shirking off his bonds, and he is dwelling in the heavens. And now here... In the book of Colossians, it was Christ. So when men and women beheld Jesus, they were beholding the same God who, in fact, dwells in the heavens. And that's the imagery there. Let me turn. uh, I know I gave Genesis 9.27 out, but let me read it with you because I want to point out a few things. Genesis 9.27 is actually a messianic passage that has to do with the seed promise. And I talked about this in a Sunday school class, I don't know, probably a year ago or so. But turn with me to Genesis 9.27. And what I'm showing you is the same term for pleased to dwell or to dwell is used here in in Genesis 9.27 and has messianic implications. Start up with me, if you will, in verse 25. It says, So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Now remember, who's being referred to? Let's stop right there. The person being referred to here is Yahweh. It's the Lord. Are you guys all with me on uh, Genesis 9.27? So it goes on. It says, The God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. That whole passage is about Yahweh. Many commentators, I think, botch it, and they try to claim, notice in verse 26, where it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. They think Canaan is going to be Shem's servant. He's not. Grammatically, Canaan is going to be Yahweh's servant. And so who owns the land of Canaan? Yahweh does, because it belongs to the Messiah. Okay, that's the idea. And now in verse 27, it says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Who's going to dwell in the tents of Shem? Is it, in fact, Japheth? No, it's Yahweh. Grammatically, we can prove that, that it is, in fact, God who will dwell in the tents of Shem. And where does the Messiah come from? The Shemites. Okay, and that's where we get the term anti-Semitic. 
Okay, they're anti-Shemitic, literally, but that's where the term comes from. And so this is a messianic passage about how Yahweh will one day dwell in the tents of Shem. That's part of the seed promise, the promise that we first see in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the serpent's head. And we see the seed promise extend right in this passage. Okay, it's going to be from the Shemites. Genesis 12, it's from Abraham. And then it goes to Isaac. Jacob, Jacob is renamed who? Israel. Israel has 12 sons. We find out, well, which of the 12 sons will the seed promise come from? Genesis 49.10, Judah. And then 2 Samuel 7.14, of all the families of Judah, he's going to come from David's family. And lo and behold, when we get to Matthew, we see that the seed of the woman has come through Joseph and Mary, hasn't he? Okay, so descendants of David. So that's all this idea of fullness and dwelling is all wrapped into this idea that God will one day dwell in his, with his people and the pinnacle of it is Christ himself. So again here we have the son is the son. I didn't word this real well. The son is the God who dwells in heaven. I must have been very tired. But my, my point here is that the second person of the Trinity the one who was talked about in Psalm 2 is scoffing at the nations as he dwells in the heavens. That's Christ. He lived among us in bodily form. This is radical. This is amazing. This is great news. God tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. That's just such good news. Okay, now let's keep going on, though, to verse 20 because we're going to reach a crescendo here that Jesus, in fact, reconciled all things. Verse 20, Paul continues, it says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on the earth or things in heavens. In other words, all things. Now, let's talk about this idea of reconciliation. Oh, oh, first of all, I've got, I want to show you something. It's kind of interesting. You see, I love prepositions, as many of you know, and it's probably, probably not your favorite, but let's look at these prepositions. Again, we can learn something from them, in my opinion. You see this one up here? This one, this one, and this one, they're all through. They're all dia in the Greek. And you remember that chart that I gave you last time? It has to do with the means. Okay, I don't know if everybody remember. Well, anyway, here's the point. What we have to do is look at, typically, this preposition is either a preposition of means or of agency. Okay, so either it's an agent doing something or it is the means by which an agent does something. Does that make sense? So follow along. And through him, so here is the agent. Who is the agent? Well, it's Jesus. Okay? So because Jesus is the agent, it implies that the plan was made by the Father. Although Jesus is the one who's carrying it out. Okay? So, and that's how dia is typically used in the New Testament. Now we come down here, and notice you have impersonal means. Okay? So here are the means by which the agent accomplishes what he will accomplish. It's through the blood. And what the blood of what? The blood of his cross. And now you come back to the agent through him. So Paul is making sure that, yeah, you know that it's through the blood of the cross, but again, the agent is through him. So it's Jesus' cross. Okay? And so that, I just wanted to show you how precisely these prepositions are used actually by Paul here. He wants to make sure you know the agent and the means of our salvation. Reconcile. This term in the Greek literally means to bring back to harmony what was lacking. And so it implies that there was something that was correct at one time 
that was right and good, but it was broken. And of course, we know it was the creation was broken through our sin, wasn't it? And who had, um, by the way, I want to talk about this idea that this news, that's good news of the gospel. It's good news primarily for the people, obviously, who trust in Jesus Christ. But it's also good news for the creation in general in the fact that God will one day restore the created order. All right. Who had uh, Romans 8.22? Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Great. So here's the idea of the whole creation groaning. And why did it groan? Well, because of the sin of Adam in the garden, God instituted this entropy. And so the whole creation is in decay. The whole creation is in turmoil. And the idea is one day God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth where what was taken away at the garden, he will one day restore. And that's why, remember, what was blocked in the garden was access to the tree of life. We see in Revelation 22, what do the people have access to once more? The tree of life. Okay, and that's the idea here. He's going to bring back and and reconcile all things. And again, this is good news for those who trust in Christ. But the reconciliation isn't necessarily, in fact, it's not necessary. It's not good news for those who do not trust in Christ. Let me explain. Notice all things. He created all things in verse 16. So think about verse 16. What Paul is saying is all things were created. Now in verse 20, all things that were created that were broken are now reconciled. So he creates everything, we wreck it, and then he puts it back together. So who gets the glory? God does, doesn't he, right? That's good news. But let me talk about this idea here of reconciliation, now by faith, but later by force. Okay? Did I give out the passage of Isaiah 45:23? Oh, yeah, Joanne. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Yeah, amen. And, and that's exactly what Paul borrows from in uh, Philippians 2, uh, is it 2.10, two, two yeah. 2.10, um, Dick, do you want to read that real quick? How about 9 through 11? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great, yep. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. So here is this idea where Jesus is going to force those who do not bow their knee to him willingly. And, of course, we know willingly is by God's grace. He will, at the end, force them to submit. In fact, in Zechariah 14, we see that the nations are going to be gathered around Jerusalem. Uh, God will descend, Jesus will descend and put his foot on the Mount of Olives. And it says in verse 3 that he will fight as a warrior does in the day of battle. And so God himself will come. And if people do not submit now to Jesus through faith, they will one day. And it's interesting, the last battle happens in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I mentioned this earlier a few weeks ago. But think about Jesus' name. Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. Where does God bring his enemies on the last day? The valley of Jehoshaphat. Literally means Yahweh is judge. So in in essence, the whole world has two options. It's either Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh is judge. But he is coming. He is coming and it will be reconciled. 
The only question is whether he's our salvation or he is our judgment. And so that's all these ideas are tied in to reconciliation. Now, I want to talk about a little bit further about this, what Jesus did accomplish for us through the cross. And let's go into verse 20 a little bit more. Notice the place that I have highlighted bold there where it says, through the blood of his cross. Now, again, that is the means by which this reconciliation takes place. But I want to talk about this idea of blood because I want to make sure that we're not going to fall into a common trap. Um, I love the fact that we sing about the blood, okay? And um, I'm a poor singer, so I won't uh, hurt my chances around being in public with you by singing or something. But um, the idea of the blood, I want you to realize it's not that the blood is a magical potion, okay? That there's somehow some metaphysical power in the blood, okay? What it is is the blood is used synonymously with reference in symbolism of the totality of Christ's suffering and death, okay? So think of the blood as, realize it's not a magical potion, but what it is is it symbolizes the Messiah, fully God, fully man, dying on a cross to fully absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. Okay? So I just want to make sure that we all get that down. The blood is not some metaphysical entity, but rather it's what it symbolizes, namely the suffering and death of our Savior. I'm sorry, Scott, you were raising your hand. I, I just wanted to comment about some people, you know, use the blood in a metaphysical sense and pleading the blood on... Yeah. And and that's not biblical. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. They're thinking of it more of as a metaphysical, like almost an incantation. If we say this word, we will somehow derive benefit. The way we derive benefit from the blood of Christ is by trusting in him. Okay, It's not by saying the word over and over or pleading it as if it has some metaphysical power. Okay, I just want to make sure we get that clear. Now, what did Jesus' death... Like, what about the song yeah, and exactly, and I don't think there's any... No, I don't think we should, and I'll tell you why. The meaning that's behind that, there's power in the blood, is because there is power in the sense that when we trust in Jesus Christ, he alleviates all of our sins. So whose blood was shed on the cross? Jesus was. And that symbolism of his, cross being, or his blood being shed is symbolic of his death, his agony, him taking the suffering upon himself. And so when I sing it, I'm just careful to say, look... There isn't some metaphysical potion or power to blood, but it's, it's symbolism in the fact that Jesus' death was atonement for me. Yeah. Yes, the concept, that, and Eric's absolutely right about that, and we want everybody to understand that, but the concept comes from the Old Testament idea that the life is in the, in the blood. Yeah. Yep. Okay? And so the blood would stand for a laid-down life. Okay? That's what it signifies. And yes, Jesus literally bled yeah. on the cross, but what paid for our salvation was the fact he laid his life down because it's a life for a life. And so we have an innocent victim, Christ, who takes the place of the guilty sinner, us. And so when we say the blood, we're talking about, yes, there was literal blood, but you know, according to Hebrews, it was applied in heaven. That's right. If you want to look it up in the book of Hebrews, but the whole point is the laid down life. Okay? Yeah. The life is in the blood. <laughs> okay, okay yeah. so 
so now we got a hundred million charismatics and Pentecostals yeah. who are using this in the wrong fashion. Yeah. But but what are they really doing? I mean, let's let's go a little just a little bit further here. What are they doing? If they're saying there's power in the blood and they're looking at it as a magical ritual, aren't they yeah. really blaspheming God with that mindset, with that theology? Yeah, I would think it would be a form of really. If you look into it, it's okay. A form so, of so then, yeah. don't you think it would behoove you to write a track and somehow get it out there on the internet? <laughs> okay, I'll get on it. <laughs> I'll get on it by the end of the day. Yeah, I, that, I, uh, <laughs> we need to remember that people yeah. are inherently superstitious. Yeah. And so you see people who, before they get in their car, plead the blood over their car. Yeah. It's really unbiblical, and it's just more like pagan understanding of magic. So, yeah, you're yeah. right, Bill. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, that's a good point. We should have tracks that um, – but, again, you know, you think about all the heresies. We would have quite a track. If we, we'd have <laughs> – we need multiple tracks. You're right. So, okay, let's get back to the cross. Jesus, think about dividing the cross in two – I want to think about categories. First, there's a first strata of categories is when Jesus dies on the cross, he provides atonement, but he also provides the last opportunity for the sinless one, the Holy One of Israel, to sin. Okay? So when he dies, he dies in perfection. And because he dies in perfection, he in fact fulfills the law on our behalf. He never sinned. Where Adam fell in the garden, our new representative, Christ, succeeds. And it was the last opportunity for him to fail. And he didn't. Okay? So therefore, he can give us something we desperately need, namely his righteousness. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21? He, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. Okay? So think of that as one category. Now, the other category is atonement. He came to bring atonement. And now, further divide that down into two aspects the atonement, I like to think of as propitiation, and Bob has talked about this, but let's just hammer it home again, propitiation and expiation. And what I want you to see is that propitiation is God-centered, whereas expiation is man-centered. Now, don't get me wrong, in the end of the day, it's all God-centered, okay? But with this little nuance, I want you to think about in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 16, in fact, I'm going to bring you there, um, I want to show you the imagery that we actually see with the two goats that are sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year where the high priest in Israel could go into the Holy of Holies and had access to the throne of grace at the mercy seat. So turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus 16. And I just want to make a point here by looking at two of the goats. Oh, and let me start off by saying this. Okay, when... The high priest, he goes in. There's three animals that are going to be sacrificed. One is a bull, and that is atonement for him because he is a wretched sinner. And so there's this idea that he needs atonement even before he goes into the Holy of Holies. And then he even has to have incense burning on his behalf. Okay? Well, then you're going to see two goats. And one goat is going to be what's called the scapegoat. And the other one is actually, his blood is going to be poured out upon the mercy seat. And so let's look at some of the imagery. And oh, by the way, I want you to see this grand picture that I came up with. This is a really good representation because of the clothing. I'll talk about that in a second. But let's see, what passage do I, or what verses actually, I want to keep this kind of succinct. Let me start up in verse 5. Leviticus 16.5, it says, He, this is the high priest, shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats, 
for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Okay, now come down to verse 8. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel, or literally the scapegoat, or I should say the scapegoat, okay? So then it goes on, he says, Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for Yahweh fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So what the high priest would then do is confess all of the sins of Israel upon this scapegoat. And this scapegoat would end up being led off into the wilderness. And the idea and the imagery there would be the sin of the people was being removed from them. It was no longer held to their account. And I would suggest to you that this is the imagery that we see for expiation. It's man-centered. It's the idea that he has removed their sins. Okay? Now, turn with me, if you will, to verse 15. And now we have the other goat that's going to be slain, and the blood is going to be applied to the mercy seat. It says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, And in front of the mercy seat, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus, he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. And then, let's see, I want to keep going down. Well, um, I'm sorry, I'm missing. uh, Let's keep going in verse 17. It says, when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, No one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. So here's the imagery that I want you to see. Look at this picture with me, if you will. And here is the cherubim that's on top of the ark. And the idea there is that God's Shekinah glory dwelt here. And inside here, the ark of the covenant is his broken law. And here we have the high priest. And notice these aren't his high priestly clothes. This is a special garment that he would wear, white linen. He would have to wash first to be pure, you know, ceremonially pure. And then he would go wear this one day a year on the day of Yom Kippur when he would go into the Holy of Holies. And the idea is he would take the blood of the goat and he would place it on the front and on the side seven times, but also on top. It makes it a clear point that it's on the mercy seat. So the idea there would be Yahweh is looking down from the Shekinah glory at his broken covenant, his broken law. And what averts his anger or propitiates him is the blood of the animal. Okay. Now, of course, we know from Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could never provide atonement, could it? But it foreshadowed the coming of Yahweh himself, of Jesus, who would one day come and make propitiation for the people. And so you have the scapegoat. Oh, you know what? I've got other things on here. I should probably put these up. You've got the two goats. You've got the scapegoat. The scapegoat takes the sins away from the people. It's man-centered. Their sins are gone. But the blood that is applied to the mercy seat appeases the wrath of an angry God because he must punish sin. But now this God who is just is having the justice paid 
in the future, he knows, in fact, by Messiah. That's the idea. The idea is one day the Messiah, who is fully God, fully man, will in fact absorb the full measure of God's wrath, just like this goat did. And he will then make happy an angry God. Let me just point up a few. Uh, like at this passage here, Psalm 103.12, David says, As far away as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. I like to use that when I'm preaching the gospel to people or witnessing to them because that is the removal of the sin from the people's lives. Okay, that's expiation. It's as far away. And by the way, do you realize when you go east or west, you can keep going east and west forever? But you can only go north so long, right? I know this. is I'm a pilot, all right? <laughs> you go north, and then all of a sudden you end up going south again. And this says something about, again, Jesus being the creator. He knows. He didn't use north and south. He used east and west, didn't he? You can go east forever. You can go west forever. The imagery there is your sins are forever gone. Once you've trusted in Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, are forever removed. Okay? That's good news. That the Holy One of Israel does not regard your sins against you. It's gone. It's gone. You've got the world by the tail if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Okay? But now, the other part is God is angry, and he must have justice. And that's where the idea of propitiation comes in. So when we proclaim the gospel and we explain the atonement to people, this is sometimes a good way of doing it, because they're wondering what happened on the cross. Why was the cross necessary? Let's take them to the cross and explain it. Because, friends, we are the only people that have atonement. And let's be the people, then, that explain it well. Okay? All right. I'm sorry, that's it. I'm, I'm out of ammo. <laughs> I, we better take questions here. And Yeah, I, I wanted to make a comment oh, yeah, about yeah. what you were just talking about. Yep. All of this that he just so wonderfully explained to us is the background for the book of Hebrews. Amen. And if you go into Hebrews, you'll see how marvelous the new covenant is. Because what Hebrews claims is that they, their process never actually decisively cleansed them because they became unclean again. And so they had to continually go back and make sacrifices. Everything in life ultimately makes you unclean. That's right. So the argument in Hebrews is that what God did in Christ decisively cleanses us once for all. If you have not listened to the series, we're back in the recording studio, by the way, Dick and I, and we're going to finish Hebrews. If you haven't listened to that, it's an excellent way to understand what Eric is just talking about and how wonderful it is that we're cleansed. And what that means is always, forever, we are fit to come into God's presence in worship. Praise God. Once for all. That's one of the key words in Hebrews is once for all, wow. whereas they had to continually make the sacrifices, which the author of Hebrews said proved that it didn't decisively purge. Wow. Uh, William Lane talks about purgation when he talks about expiation. Yeah, that's a great term, actually. Yeah, cleansing, just yeah. washing away sins. Yeah. You know what, I'm sorry, I, I forgot I had one more slide. Let me just throw this up here just so we have a summary of Colossians. And I just want to, you know, Dick had a great idea the other day. He says, why don't you summarize what this is all about so you guys have kind of a summary of the section we went through. So this is my summary of what we talked about. Listen to this. Jesus stands high above the angelic realm in that he both created all things and reconciled all things that have been cursed by the effects of sin. The Colossians needed no other savior, neither do we. 
And that's what we take with us today. Bob had pointed out last week the different things that the emergents were trusting in. People are adding to the gospel. They're taking from the gospel. There's only one gospel, and there's only one Christ that saves. We need no other thing. Oh, we had a question back there, a couple of them I know. Nicole had one, and then back there too. You were talking about the, the power in the blood. Yeah. And how that there's no... It's power in the blood because the blood symbolizes God's substitutionary death. And therefore, we have power in Christ's substitutionary death. You can just swap the word right out. I love it. Yep, well said. That's right. Well said. Yeah, we have power in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's right. I was wondering, in Matthew 27, um, I believe it's 52 and 53, it says that after Jesus died on the cross, the tombs were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Is that in their regular or their glorified body? Yeah, I don't think it's in their glorified body. Again, I would make the case that these men died again. Okay, Now, I have no evidence for that but they're not with us today. <laughs> um, maybe the Lord took them. This is an area of Scripture, too, where I don't have any further evidence to shed on it other than to say, I know, for instance, from Lazarus, I know from other resurrections that they were not given a glorified body that lasted forever. So without any further information, I would assume that these men, again, died and they are waiting for the ultimate resurrection where they will, in fact, get a glorified body never to perish again. That would be my take on it. Bob, do you have any thoughts on that? I totally agree with you. We, we, know, we can infer from Colossians that that has to be the case. Oh, yeah. Because Jesus right. is the first root, so that's he right. was the first raised, and he was raised after those people. So yeah. he's the first one raised with an immortal, imperishable body. It says in First Corinthians 15 that this perishable has to put on imperishable. Oh, that's good and news. that's our future hope. One other point I want to uh, talk about that yeah. uh, that you didn't mention in that section of Colossians. Some <laughs> false teachers latch on to the Christ hymn mm-hmm. to try to prove ultimate Reconcil- reconciliation. Yeah. In other words, they say when God reconciles all things to himself, that means the devil will be saved, the demons will be mm-hmm. saved, everybody that never believed in Jesus will be saved, and that's exactly what the emergence teach. Yeah. Okay, universalism. Yeah. But we know from a we have to always keep in mind the entire testimony of Scripture. That's right. Okay? So we know for a fact from Revelation 20 that there's a lake of fire, and Satan goes there, the false prophet goes there, the beast goes there, and ultimately everybody's name who's not in the book of life goes into the lake of fire. So there is no such thing as ultimate reconciliation. So uh, reading the rest of Colossians, you'll also notice that there are evil forces that are definitely not reconciled to God. That's a great point. And you know, Bob, you're big on helping us see different categories. And I, I think that's important. In other words, when we get our categories right, we get our theology right. And one thing that we have to keep straight is when it says all things, it's not thinking of every single thing, but a thing from every category. In other words, the, the point being is it's not every single human being is going to be reconciled to God in the sense that they're saved, but rather there will be of the human camp, there will be those who will, in fact, be reconciled. Does that make sense? So it's as if, um, like, for instance, in uh, 1 John 2.2, 2, 
that he made propitiation not only for our sins, but sins of the whole world? Does whole world mean every single person? No, it means that, in fact, of all of the world, there will be Jews and Gentiles taken out of it that will, in fact, be under the propitiation of the Lamb. Does that make sense? You do. Exactly. That's yeah, right. good point. So, yeah. uh, Eric, thank you. That was yeah, thank fabulous. you, guys. Wow. Yeah, thank you, everybody. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to let everybody know, the Hebrew series that Bob and Dick has been doing is on the website under the Bible Studies Hebrews. We put it there for easy access. Um, so it's there as well, well as where it's been. 